0: Hey, it's Sunny Days. I am the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Listen, I am a podcast her, okay? H-E-R, an activist, a thought leader,
1: pin pusher, and lover of poodles. And I'm Lisa Davis, MPH. I am a lover of social justice, healthy living, dogs, and I love being the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than
0: a hashtag. Now is the time for honest, unfiltered conversations, for authentic voices and their stories, and for connection.
1: Join us as we confront the moment head on with this podcast. It is passionate. It is real as lives behind the headlines. Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag.
0: And listen, it goes beyond the likes, the retweets, and the hashtags, making space for the vital dialogue necessary for racial justice.
1: And now, on to the show. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Unfortunately, Sunny is away today. I just read an amazing book, very eye-opening Very hopeful. It is called Becoming Abolitionists, Police Protests in the Pursuit of Freedom. It is by Derica Purnell. Derricka Purnell is a human rights lawyer, writer, and organizer. She received her JD from Harvard Law School and works to end police and prison violence by providing legal assistance, research, and training to community-based organizations through an abolitionist framework. Her work and writing have been featured in the New York Times, the Atlantic, the Boston Globe, the Boston Reviews, and many other publications. She is currently a columnist at The Guardian. Derricka Purnell, welcome to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Yes. Thank you
0: so much for having me.
1: The first question that we always ask, and Sunny always asks it, but she's not here, is what were you marinated in?
0: Marinated in? Yeah. Oh, man, this is a wonderful question. Thank you, Sunny, um, came up with it. <laughs> yes, what was I, what I am marinated in late nights on front porches in St. Louis in summers, listening to my grandmother's records and trying to guess which samples, which hip hop samples they inspired. And so all of that love, all of that art, all of um, those late nights, that's what I think have made the best parts of me.
1: Oh, I love that. Now, in the book Becoming Abolitionists: Police Protests and the Pursuit of Freedom, I love that you write and I have a bunch of quotes. Uh, when people come across police abolition for the first time, they tend to dismiss abolitionists for not caring about neighborhood safety or the victims of violence. They tend to forget that often we are those victims, those survivors of violence too. Can you expand on that for
0: us, Erica? Yes, of course, and so in the aftermath of the uprisings in the wake of George Floyd's murder, I saw so many politicians, especially black politicians who were like, look, all these people were talking about abolish the police or defund the police. They're basically white people coming in from the suburbs and they don't have to worry about the crime in your neighborhood. And so they're saying abolition and then they're going back to name a suburb outside of Newark, New Jersey, right? Montclair, they're going back to Clayton in St. Louis, or they're going back to Fort Worth, wherever. And so I was just like, Oh no, no, no. They're making abolition as if it's this new fringe, like cool hip white youngster movement. It's like no, it's actually a, a interestingly diverse movement um, that involves survivors. And so I noticed that when when people, especially like I said mayors, people have the power to fund police, the power to to decide how police are going to move in the world. They were using, you know, what about victims? You don't care about victims. And it's, it's like, well, what do you think many abolitionists are like? We're victims, too. We're survivors, too. And so you have to you have to just be honest that you're choosing to privilege particular survivors voices yep. for a political agenda to fund police. Right. Because if you truly cared about all survivors and you would take abolitionist survivors seriously, which they don't. So that's where that sentiment is coming from.
1: Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. You know, it was interesting, too. You write about how initially the notion of police uh, abolition repulsed me. And you kind of just touched on some of that about people thinking it was for white activists. And then you talk about how that changed after Darren Wilson murdered Michael Brown and Ferguson. You can talk a little bit about and what was that like shift for you?
0: Life. yeah so it wasn't And the book um in the book i one thing i try to show is that it wasn't always so linear like it's right. very very messy right so there are ideas that you're excited about that you're curious about and then you think about it you're like mm, i'm actually not sure i need to know what's going to happen to murderers because i don't want someone to kill me and then just go home and order a pizza right because that's what happened to jordan davis i said that's not the world that i want and so by the time jordan um Darren Wilson murdered Michael Brown, I was like, okay, like let's continue to try to reform the police. I was working on police reforms. I was advocating for body cameras, diversity, community policing. We need more people involved. And then as the movement continued to build momentum and I started watching all of the reforms get implemented, but it didn't slow down the killings. I was like, okay, what's going on here? Because our reforms, our good-hearted reforms are being implemented, yet the violence remains, right? The, but the threat of violence remains. That's insufficient for us to get free. And I felt very lucky that I had been meeting activists at that time from different parts of the world, from Amsterdam, the New Collective, to the Feast Must Fall activists in South Africa, to radical student activists across campuses, mm-hmm. who is just like, you know, Reform is not enough. We actually need to ask about the origins of these institutions and start to dismantle and decolonize them. And that's when abolition, when I started reading more, studying more, asking more questions, the more curious I became, the more invested I became in the abolitionist project.
1: Yeah, you know, I was thinking about like punishment versus accountability. And I I think that's so interesting. Like, I have a 17 year old daughter, if somebody murdered her, I would want to murder them, right? Like, that's a natural response, you know? (laughs) So, but yet, I like the idea about accountability. What does that mean for them to take accountability?
0: Well, it depends, right? And so, Abolition is a process is always going to be in the making. And I hope that the reasons why people want to become abolitionists today are very different from the reasons why people want to become abolitionists in the future. So, for example, right now, there are like 14 to 16,000 murders every year. The reason why people kill people vary. Right. When mm-hmm. I initially asked oh, what about the murderous question, "murderers" was just such a blanket category right. of people waiting to run into your house and like do a horrible thing to you at night. The more I started researching and understanding what this category of murders meant, how uh, homicides actually take place, I was just like, oh, wow, wow, wow. Wait, wait, wait. A lot of these murders happen because men are trying to control women and their sexuality. A lot of these murders happen because of a property dispute. A lot of these murders happen because someone's trying to take money from someone and it goes wrong. A lot of these murders happen because it's a petty argument that escalates because someone's manhood or that someone feels disrespected. The more I started to learn about the category of a murderer, the the easier it became to digest solutions, right? Because very, 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 very few murders are actually senseless and random. I mean like less than 2%. Like it's just, it's remarkably low, which makes me hopeful about the kinds of murders that we can ultimately prevent without police Right. And so it yeah. really depends on why someone would kill someone. Was this an accident? Was this rage? Was this temporary insanity? Was this self defense? Like, what's, what are the. And then once we ask those questions, it puts us in a better situation to figure out what does actual accountability look like? Because accountability for an accident is very different than accountability because of jealousy, right? Right. We have to figure out the root causes of that. So abolitionists are inviting people in to think about how to develop that language and that practice of accountability without just putting someone in the cage
1: oh yeah you know my best friend for 35 years is in prison and he really mm-hmm. needs mental health he really does like he has some very serious mental health issues and like he's it's, he's just getting worse like there's yeah. nothing they're fucking doing nothing and it's just absolutely heartbreaking like every time i talk to him he's less him it's like they just they just treat you like such dirt. Well, they're
0: doing something which is incarcerating him, which is probably increasing the amount of support that he needs in order to survive, and they're harming him. So they're doing something that just harming him. It's it's terrible. So, so sorry.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, like it's just. And then an- another situation too. I have a friend who has a son on the autism spectrum with anxiety, and he was on the roof, and he was con- mm-hmm. you know sound him in a jump. They called the police and. They get him down and then he's, you know, having a fucking panic attack and they're sitting on him. And so he spits at them and now it's all and he was white. Let's be honest. He was black. He'd be dead. So that's the thing. It's like, how do we look at these problems and solve them and help society without needing these structures? Right. Because these systems aren't working.
0: Yes. I mean, I think organizers all across the country are, are coming up with answers to that, right? When you look at right. the work that Freedom Community Center is doing in North St. Louis, they're trying to say, well, this these sets of neighborhoods have high murder rates. Why? Why? Yeah. Right? And they also have high visibility and presence of police. So if police were able to stop the murders... When the murder rate be going down with more police? But there's not there's not an inverse relationship with murders and policing. So we see more murders, more police, more murders, more police. And then people fear, well, if you take away the police, the murders are going to continue to go. So when I look at the work that Freedom Community Center is doing, for example, it's like, well, what do people in this community actually need? Right. How do we make sure that people have the resources that they need that let that makes them less likely to commit violence and makes them less likely to be a victim or survivor of violence? Right. So we need people doing that work. We also need people fighting for a big structural change. And this part is so important to me. I think it's impossible to talk about abolition without also talking about capitalism because because. What police ultimately do is manage all of that inequality that capitalism produces. And so we need people making big fights, trying to win movement and policy change that eradicates or erodes capitalism. We need universal child care. We need free college. We need student debt cancellation. We need universal health care. Because once you have these larger systems in place, what you do is put people in a position to be empowered to have some level of self determination to get out of situations that they may be in because they're in precarious, right? Right. If I'm in an abusive relationship and I don't have childcare, I don't have anywhere to go. There's maybe a shelter that I don't feel safe going to. If I get a divorce, I'm going to lose my health insurance. I'm going to stay married, right? It's like well. How do we give people more options to like be empowered and decide what kinds of people and what kinds of communities they want to create? So we need that direct investment and we need the the big, bold, visionary changes. Yeah,
1: absolutely. You know, I, you were doing an interview, I think it was on the stacks and you were talking about imagination and I thought it was so interesting because you talked about how all of these things that aren't working have been, were imagined, right? You yes. were saying that, yet when you try to come up with something loving and creative and inclusive and use that for imagination people are like ah that's never gonna work it's like well you imagine shitty stuff can't we imagine good stuff
0: exactly i I, that is so part like important to me words like imagination and community are quite neutral to me i don't try to romanticize them everyone's like oh let's just reimagine police and it's like well police were imagined Police were imagined to be slave catchers. They were imagined to break up labor strikes. They were imagined to repress all kinds of people who fell out of the desirable categories of who should be in the United States, right? So these were fixtures of imagination. And the reason I say that is precisely for what you just said, that these weren't just like objective fixtures in reality that like organically grew from the ground. Like people said, hmm, how do we stop people from running away from plantations? Oh, we send people to go catch them. We, that's an imaginative response right. How do we stop people from running away We put them in cuffs We put them in a cage We create slits in their door So we can slide food to feed them. These, these, So we imagine tools of oppression all the time And we have to think about that as imagination Precisely for what you just said Because then if we have the power and capacity To imagine that violence And we have the imagination To then dismantle it And build something more beautiful in its place
1: so first of all, I really hope you'll come back. I know you're very popular. You got a lot going on, but Sunny would just, you know, as a black woman, I want her in on this conversation. She's awesome. I was going to swear again, but I don't need to.
0: Please have me back. I'm more than happy to come back.
1: Derek, I could talk to you forever. I have so many pages of notes. I think you're amazing. I love what you're oh, doing. thank you
0: so much.
1: Of course, again, is Becoming Abolitionist, least Protest, and the Pursuit of Freedom. And I love the cover. People have got to get this book. Tell us all the ways we can find you.
0: Oh, wow. You can find me online. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Twitter. You can go to my website, um, derica.com, which is D-E-R-E-C-K-A.com. And on my website, there's a list of resources of abolitionist material, organizations, just a bunch of stuff where people can go and find out more.
1: Thank you so much for listening to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Please be sure to rate, review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Tell your friends and family. This is really important and we want to get the word out. So glad that you're listening. Please keep coming back. Also follow us on Instagram at activeallyship.podcast. Thank you so much.